Well, if you would, open up with me to 1 Corinthians, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians and chapter 15. Uh, chapter 15. And as you're turning there, uh, let me do say a special word of greeting to our visitors. Uh, we're very happy to see you this morning. We're thankful you're here. We pray uh, that the Lord bless you uh, as we study God's Word together. Uh, and also let me mention that if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you're welcome to use one of those in the seats in front of you. And if you want to use one of those, our passage this morning is on page 961 in those Bibles. So today is Resurrection Sunday, uh, Easter Sunday. Some people don't like using the word Easter because of uh, pagan origins. But whatever you want to call it, it is the day set aside by Christians around the world to particularly remember and celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. It's not a biblical holiday. Uh, That is, nowhere do the scriptures command us set aside one Sunday a year to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Instead, the New Testament moves the Sabbath to Sundays and calls it the Lord's Day because of the resurrection. In other words, the reason that we worship on Sundays And not on Saturdays, the way the ancient Jews did, is to honor and to remember the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there is a very real sense in which every Sunday ought to be Easter Sunday for us. Now there is a real sense in which every Sunday ought to be a remembering of the resurrection. And certainly every Sunday we proclaim a risen Savior a Savior who is alive and well, a perfect Savior for sinners. But today is Easter Sunday, and it is a special time in our culture and in our church. It's also April Fool's Day. That doesn't happen very often. Uh, Easter and April Fool's Day both fell on the same day last in 1956. So that shows you how, how rare this is. It's going to happen again in 2029, then again in 2040, and it won't happen again this century. So it's fairly rare for Easter and April Fool's Day to to fall together. And so some skeptics see this as really a prime opportunity to make some public critiques and some attacks. Uh, People like to play jokes, of course, on April Fool's Day. And these critics say, guess what, Christians? The joke's on you. You've been hoodwinked, you've been duped, you've been bamboozled, you've built your life and your faith around this man called Jesus, and yet what you believe is a lie. Uh, Sure, there's plenty of historical evidence that a man named Jesus existed and walked this earth and preached a message and was crucified, but he died, and he stayed dead. Because people don't get up from the dead. And what you've put your faith in is a hoax. Well, that's the critique. And at bottom, this has been the fundamental attack against Christianity from the very beginning. 
So even when Jesus was walking this earth in the midst of the people of Israel, there were some there who denied the idea of a resurrection, who denied that there could ever be a time in which anybody would get up from the dead. These people, by the way, were called Sadducees. The Sadducees denied the resurrection and they tried to stump Jesus with their questions. They tried to show how silly and ridiculous this idea of a resurrection really is. The famous philosopher David Hume said that whenever anybody claimed something miraculous had happened like this, he would always ask himself this question, which is more plausible, that the miracle happened or that I'm being misled. And he said the only time he would ever believe in a miracle is if the miracle itself was more believable and more credible than the idea that the person telling him about the miracle was wrong. And his conclusion was this, it's always more likely that the person giving you the information is wrong than it is that the miracle happened. And so he denied all miracles and denied the resurrection. Thomas Paine had a great influence on the founding of this nation. Uh, Thomas Paine helped arouse the colonists to rebel against England, but he also made very clear what he thought about the resurrection in his book, The Age of Reason. He said he was under no obligation whatsoever to believe what others tell him. He said it's just hearsay. Since the supposed resurrection of Jesus... Happened so long ago, he argued that all we have is hearsay upon hearsay upon hearsay and nothing reliable. In fact, he suggested that the real hero of the Gospels is Thomas. That Thomas is the model for us because Thomas said he would not believe that Jesus had had risen from the dead until he saw him with his own eyes. And Thomas Paine said that's how it ought to be for all of us. That a resurrection is such an incredible, unbelievable claim that we have no reason to believe such a thing unless we've actually seen it with our own eyes. In our day, uh, famous atheist Richard Dawkins, professor at Oxford University, author of The God Delusion, he argues we're now too scientific and too sophisticated to keep holding on to such myths. He argues that Christianity's reign over Western civilization has been a time of darkness, and it's time for for Europe and America to come into the light of secularism. And he said this, the 19th century, the 1800s, the 19th century is the last time when it was possible for an educated person to admit to believing in miracles like the virgin birth without embarrassment. When pressed, many educated Christians are too loyal to deny the virgin birth and the resurrection, but it embarrasses them because their rational minds know that it is absurd, and so they would much rather just not be asked. So according to Dawkins, the 1800s was the last time a real thinking person could actually believe in the resurrection. We've moved beyond that now. We're too sophisticated for such outlandish ideas. And so here's my question. As we have gathered here this morning to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, 
Are we the April Fool's? Are we ridiculous to hold to such a notion? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul deals directly with this issue. Because there were apparently some folks troubling these early Christians, and they were arguing, just like the secularist in history and of our day, that there is no resurrection from the dead. There were folks troubling these Christians in Corinth saying it's impossible, it doesn't happen, it can't happen, there is no resurrection. And so look at what Paul says. Look beginning in verse 12. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So the first thing for us to note here is that Paul agrees with the skeptics on one point. That if there is no resurrection, Christians really are fools. Paul agrees, if there is no resurrection, we have built our lives on a lie. We have wasted a great deal of time and energy. We are the most pathetic, or the word he uses, we are the most pitiable people on earth. In fact, Paul makes it worse. He shows us exactly what's at stake here. He helps us feel how utterly important this issue is. Let me summarize what he says here with four points. Number one, if there is no resurrection, people don't get up from the dead, then Jesus did not rise from the dead. That's verse 13. So if If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Which means, okay, the tomb was empty, but there must be some other explanation. Uh, There are three classic explanations that are given by skeptics for the empty tomb. One is that the disciples stole the body themselves. Uh, Somehow people forgot which tomb Jesus was buried in and they went to the wrong tomb. Or Jesus didn't really die, but appeared dead. And when he regained consciousness later, he came out of the tomb, only to die again later. All three of those explanations have huge problems. But if there is no resurrection, Paul says, if resurrections can't happen, then one of those explanations must be true, or there must be some other explanation for the empty tomb. Number two, If there is no resurrection, Christianity is a lie. Uh, Paul puts it very bluntly in verse 14. 
If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. You see, the resurrection is absolutely central to the Christian faith. People become Christians because they put their trust in a living Lord Jesus. If you're a Christian, it's because you are trusting in one who is able to save you, able to reconcile you to God, able to bring you safely through death into heaven. A dead man can't do any of that. A dead Jesus is a useless Jesus to you. A dead Jesus cannot fulfill any of the things you're trusting him to fulfill for you. Moreover, a dead Jesus is a liar because he claimed he was going to rise again. This means that Jesus can't be trusted and everything else he taught is immediately insuspect. Uh, The Jewish Talmud says that Jesus was a sorcerer and a blasphemer who was justly hung on a tree for his crimes on Passover Eve. And you know what? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that's exactly what he was. He was a sorcerer and a blasphemer who was rightly hung on a tree. And he's dead. He was a trickster. He made people think he can do miracles. He was a false teacher, teaching lies about God and himself. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, not only should we just put Christianity aside, we must name it what it is. Christianity is a great evil. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead. In fact, this is our third point. If there is no resurrection, Christians are committing a great evil. This is what Paul says in verse 15. Do you see it? Verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. In other words, if we preach and proclaim that God raised Jesus from the dead and he did no such thing, then we're not just wrong, we're spreading lies about God. And there's a word for that. It's called blasphemy. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, Christians are not just mistaken people. No, Christians are people who are doing great evil by proclaiming falsehoods about God to the world. This is why Thomas Jefferson's view cannot stand Uh, Thomas Jefferson wanted to deny the miracles of Jesus. He wanted to deny the virgin birth. He wanted to deny the resurrection. And yet he still wanted to hold up Jesus as a great moral teacher. And you remember he famously took his copy of the New Testament and he cut out the miracles and he left in the teaching. But the moral teachings of the Bible are all rooted in Jesus' claim to be the Son of God. A Son who came and died and rose. If that's not true, the Bible is a deceptive book. It is a book which lies. It is a wicked book. Take away the resurrection and the entire system and trustworthiness of Christianity falls apart. The resurrection is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. If it's a lie, Christianity cannot stand. And then there's a fourth point, and this shows us why this is so personal. If there's no resurrection, we have no hope. And we as sinners will spend eternity in hell. 
This is where Paul goes. Verses 16 and 17. You see it? Verse 16. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Futile. Vain. Of no benefit whatsoever. And you are still in your sins. In other words, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, there are some facts that do not change. The fact that there is a God before whom we all must give an account, that does not change. The fact that we're all sinners, offenders against the God of heaven, deserving of hell, does not change. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the only thing that changes is this. Now we have no hope. Now there is no way of salvation. Friends, we sit here this morning as people created in the image of God and as people created under His law. And because we've all broken the law of God, we deserve to be judged. God is too good and too holy to let sin go unchecked. Every sin against an infinitely good God deserves an infinite punishment. And your sins and my sins stand against us, piling up like Mount Everest, accusing us before the holiness of God. And without Jesus, who's going to save you? If He's still dead, what hope do you have? You say, Justin, I've got my good works. Friend, your good works will be found to be filthy rags on that day. You say, Justin, there are other religions. All other religions will be exposed as vain man-made things on that day. Scripture makes all this clear. Reason makes this clear. Sheer reason points us to the existence of a holy God. The same principles that give us scientific laws also teach us that life must come from life. Intelligence must come from intelligence. Order must come from order. There must be some eternal being of whom there is eternal life and intellect and existence and order. And all of us have within us a moral compass. Some inward sense that there is a right and wrong. That there is... Well, you know when somebody gets in front of you in the line at Chick-fil-A that somebody has just wronged you. And nobody had to teach you that. You just know it. There are some laws of right and wrong. You just know deep in your soul. You know where that came from? A lawgiver. So the resurrection away and what you're left with is the reality of a humanity that is broken Wicked, hellbound, and with no hope whatsoever. In verse 18, Paul reminds us what this means for those who have come before us. He says, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That word perish does not mean physically died. That word perish means sunk forever into God's endless punishment. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish. Hell. 
Paul says if there is no resurrection, Abraham is in hell. Moses is in hell. David is in hell. Joseph and Mary are in hell. Today, Peter, James, and John are in hell. Paul himself is suffering the torments of hell this moment. Those who you have known who walked with Christ, my dear great-grandmother who sung to me these precious songs of faith, little boy, she is in hell. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, Paul says. If there is no resurrection. We often talk about how atheists must logically have a worldview that is hopeless and meaningless. But in reality, if there is no resurrection, all of us must have a worldview that is hopeless. There is nothing but endless despair ahead if Jesus didn't get up from the dead. And by the way, no one is worse than the person who preaches a false hope when there is no hope. What could be more evil than to say to people that there is a way for all to turn out right for you when in fact you're just duping them? If there is no resurrection, Christians are false hope people. And millions have died believing that false hope and have been horrifically surprised when they pass from this life into the next. What messed up people we are if there is no resurrection. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so in light of all that, friends, don't we praise God for verse 20? But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. In fact, Paul says, in fact, not, not in theory, not as a fairy tale, not as a possibility or a hope or a wish or a story we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel better. No, an objective historical fact. Christ has been raised from the dead. This is so important. Throughout the last century, Christian scholars began to buy into this terrible idea that you can make a distinction between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. And these people said the Jesus of history was just a backwater preacher in Israel who lived and died and that was the end. He did not get up from the dead. He was just a backwater preacher, and we've made a big deal out of him. He was just a regular guy. But the Christ of faith is still valuable. We can find hope and security and peace in our stories, in our traditions, and what we've made out of that man who lived and died. If the story is fiction, that's no big deal. It's still a story that we can find hope in. That's ridiculous, church. That is just ridiculous. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, it is a big deal. The Christianity of the Bible claims to be a historical religion. Not mythology, history. 
The claims of the Bible are claims about events which happen in time and in space. In fact, the Bible goes out of its way to connect its people and its events with real identifiable times and places in world history. The scriptures teach the resurrection of Jesus as something which actually occurred in the timeline of the history of this world. Indeed, our whole timeline is built around it, isn't it? Everything changed after the resurrection. So why do we as Christians believe that in fact the resurrection of Jesus happened? Well, first, there is the empty tomb. If you are here this morning and you are not a believer, let me just ask you, what do you do with the empty tomb? How do you make sense of that? You say, Justin, come on now. I don't think it was empty. I think they just made up this story years later, pretending it was empty. Well, friends, there is mounds of historical evidence against you. (laughs) Because if it wasn't empty, then it was really silly a few weeks later. For the apostles of Jesus to preach his resurrection right there in the streets of Jerusalem. They didn't start off preaching the resurrection of the dead in some distant land. They started right there in Jerusalem. And anyone who doubted their message could just walk right over to the tomb and look. They could see whether it was empty or not. In fact, it appears that even the religious leaders had to admit that it was empty because their official explanation was that the body had been stolen. Moreover, the apostles were teaching that Jesus had been laid in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. That he had actively participated in bringing about the burial of Jesus. It's Joseph of Arimathea with Nicodemus beside him who takes the corpse of Christ and buries it in Joseph's tomb. Joseph of Arimathea was a well-known, powerful man. A member of the Sanhedrin. If the apostles were telling a story that was a lie and misrepresented this man, it would have been very quickly found out. We know that Mark's account of the tomb of Jesus dates back to a source within seven years of the resurrection. In other words, these are not gospel writers writing hundreds and hundreds of years later. about No, this, within seven years of the resurrection, Mark's account is written down. We must also remember that the empty tomb was first discovered by a group of women. And that's actually particularly important because the testimony of women was not allowed In courts of the first century. Women had no standing to testify in court or to validate testimony. William Lane Craig says, If the empty tomb story were a legend, if it was made up, it is almost certain that the male disciples would have been made the first to discover the empty tomb. The fact that despised women, whose testimony was deemed worthless where the chief witnesses to the fact of the empty tomb can only be plausibly explained if, like it or not, they actually were the ones who discovered the empty tomb. Yet here in 1 Corinthians 15, we see that Paul has another evidence in mind. Unlike Thomas Paine, Paul does not believe that the only way you should believe in something miraculous is if you see it with your own eyes. In fact, many people today will never go to Israel and they will never see the empty tomb. 
frankly, there are three competing sites all claiming to be the site of the empty tomb. The one that's most famous, I think, is not the right one, but that's a discussion for another day. I think it's buried under the church of the sepulcher. doesn't matter. The point is, you probably will never see the empty tomb with your own eyes. Paul argues that we should believe in the resurrection on the testimony of credible witnesses. And that's the evidence he gives us. In fact, Brother Sherwood read it for us. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Look at beginning in verse 3. Up earlier in this chapter. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. Then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Friends, even if you do not trust this book called the Bible, you need to know that this letter that we're looking at, this letter to the church in Corinth, is one of seven New Testament letters in the undisputed category when it comes to authorship. In other words, even the most critical of scholars agrees that this letter of 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul and that it's authentic. Moreover, there is general agreement about the date of this letter. Some say 53 or 54 A.D., others say 56 or 57 A.D., but somewhere in the 50s, Paul wrote this letter of 1 Corinthians. So 25 to 30 years after the death of Jesus, we have Paul writing this letter. And this means that Paul's argument here that so many people saw the risen Christ has to be taken seriously. Because when Paul writes this to the Corinthians, he says many of these witnesses are still alive. You can go talk to them, Corinthians. You don't have to take my word for it. If Paul was making a false claim here, it could have been easily disproven or mistaken. The Corinthians were connected to trade routes that took them all through the Roman Empire for their business. It would not have taken long for the Corinthian Christians to discover that these witnesses didn't exist if Paul was making this up. So either Paul was lying and he would be easily exposed... Or these people that he mentions really did encounter the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul did as well on the road to Damascus. In fact, let me just ask you. How do you explain what happened to Paul? How do you explain his story? I mean, by all accounts, here is a hater of Christianity. Here is one of the greatest persecutors of the early church. He is the man who is hunting down Christians and putting them in prison and bringing charges against them. When Stephen is being stoned to death for his faith in Jesus, here is Saul of Tarsus, Paul, looking on, and suddenly he's a changed man, and he's leading the charge of preaching the gospel. I mean, he... He was on the fast track. He was a student of Gamaliel, well-respected, on his way to becoming part of the Sanhedrin, 
and he gave it all up. He gave it all up to preach a gospel where he would be driven out of towns, imprisoned over and over, beaten several times, stoned near to death, ultimately beheaded under Nero. Explain that. Why would Paul do that if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead? Why would Paul do that if he's making up this story of Jesus appearing to him? He didn't get wealthy. He didn't have a life of ease because of it. Just the opposite. He lost everything. What is your explanation for the fact that all of the disciples of Jesus went to their deaths declaring the truth of the resurrection? If it was a lie, it only would have taken one slip by one of the disciples to bring it all down. And yet one by one, the disciples faced terrible persecution, torture, and the most painful deaths, and they still held firm. And so Chuck Colson worked in the Nixon administration. He was caught up in the Watergate scandal. Chuck Colson said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. They proclaimed that truth for 40 years and never once denied it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep the lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible, he says. Do you believe that Plato existed? Do you believe that Alexander the Great existed? Do you believe in the Trojan War? Or that there was a lost colony on the outer banks of North Carolina? If you believe those things happen, you are believing them probably for one reason. Testimony. You are believing the testimony of witnesses who have passed down that information to you. You believe these people and events took place because witnesses recorded and passed down that information to us. In fact, with folks like Plato, even our oldest manuscripts bearing witness to these guys is more than a thousand years after they lived. We don't have anything that tells us about Plato until a thousand years after he lived. But no one walks around questioning what Plato says. No one walks around asking for, well, we need more evidence. We need more evidence for some of the incredible things that he did. And yet we have mounds more evidence in the historical record that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And we have a plethora of witnesses. D.H. Vendalen rightly said, It is extremely difficult to object to the empty tomb on historical grounds. Those who deny it do so on the basis of theological or philosophical assumptions. In other words, it's really hard to deny the resurrection based on what we see in history. People deny the resurrection because of one thing. They just can't get themselves to believe that somebody can get up from the dead. It's just a leap too far. It's just, it's just more than they get. People don't get up from the dead. It doesn't happen. How do you explain the sudden and rapid growth of Christianity in those early centuries? 
How do you explain 10,000 people coming to, coming to Jesus in the weeks right after Pentecost? It's because these people had seen the crucified Lord Jesus and now we're seeing people who were saying, we have seen Him. If the resurrection was a fraud, it is undoubtedly the greatest fraud ever perpetrated in the history of mankind. Thousands upon thousands of people who lived at the time of Jesus' death, in the vicinity of Jesus' death, and even had a hand in Jesus' death, became so convinced of his resurrection that they upended their lives, threw away their social status, and risked imprisonment or worse, and believed. So I guess the real question this morning is this. What do you believe? What do you believe? If you deny not only the scriptures but the testimony of history and you refuse to believe in the resurrection, I am sorry to be God's messenger to inform you there is no hope for you. Do you understand that? That as long as the resurrection is an obstacle to faith for you that you cannot overcome, there is no hope for you. You will stand before God in your sins and you will receive in yourself all that your sins deserve. But if you acknowledge that the Lord Jesus Christ really was raised from the dead, if you acknowledge that He is a living Lord, a living Savior, then He can be your Savior. Then you can trust Him and find the salvation He gives. I would be an unfaithful messenger from God this morning if I did not ask, how goes it with your soul today? How do things stand between you and God are you able to join in the celebration this morning? Are you able to rejoice with us because the resurrection of Jesus means you will one day be in heaven? Or could it be that you have never believed on Christ? Could it be that Jesus' resurrection has no benefit for you because you're not one of His? Is hell still in your future because you refuse to lay down your pride and give your allegiance to the King of Kings. Friends, there is only one way of salvation. Jesus is the door. John 10 verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. John 14 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is the grace of God that you're here this morning. It is the grace of God that you have another opportunity to repent. Has your conscience become seared? Has your heart become too hard? Or is there something deep within you that is echoing the truth of what I'm saying? Do you not feel your guilt before a holy God? 
Must you not confess that you are a condemned person worthy of eternal torment? You have not spurned a small God. You have spurned a God infinitely good, infinitely wise, infinitely powerful, infinitely worthy of your utter devotion. But the message of the resurrection is the message that there is grace for you if you will have it. There is grace for you. No matter how great your sins, no matter how terrible they are, no matter what your state is, the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to save you. Jesus is the door. And He calls you this morning to come to Him. Begin a new life of following Jesus Christ, being baptized in His name, learning from His Word, being His disciple. Let the world call us fools. God has chosen what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. Come and be numbered among us fools for Christ and know what it is to enjoy and love and serve the resurrected Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.